Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning, good evening, good night, NBN Entrepreneurship and Leadership. Personally, I'm fascinated by the story. Trust is an underrated weapon in the business landscape. I'm a really, really strong believer in learning by doing. What's the definition of success? He's trying to come up with an answer to the question. But go ahead, Richard. You could be right, but you're wrong. <laughs> good morning, good evening, good night, whatever time of day or night it is, entrepreneurship and leadership channel listeners on the New Books Network. Today, we've got a very special guest, Rita Clifton, and I'm here with my co-host, Kim Fontukidis. Um, Rita, would you like to just introduce yourself to our audience in the context of someone who perhaps has never heard of you or doesn't know about your tremendously successful career and wonderful book? Well, thank you very much for that uh, introduction. Um, well, I guess I wear a lot of hats in my working life these days. I sit on the board of um, quite big commercial organisations like John Lewis Partnership and uh, Essential PLC and um, and also I sit on the board of various non-profits. I chair an organisation, a sustainability organisation called uh, Forum uh, for the Future and on the board of Green Alliance. I'm a former board director of WWF. So, so my life has got quite a few sort of different aspects. Um, and I guess my main day job, you know, the thing that is, you know, my sort of background specialism was brand strategy. And I guess it still is brand strategy, really. I mean, I was at Saatchi and Saatchi for 11 years, and then I was uh, chief executive and then chair at Interbrand, which is a global brand consultancy for uh, 15 years before I develop the portfolio. Um, so that's really, you know, part of my life now. Um, and, you know, where it started, I started in the advertising business because basically um, I was very nosy about people, nosy about customers and what made people tick and things like that. And also I really quite like watching television. So advertising felt like, you know, a reasonable place to start. Um, and then from advertising, I went into strategy uh, which really lit me up. Uh, I mean, I think that's you know, one of the key things, certainly, of my working life is finding the thing that I was good at um, out of all the different things I tried. And then that really gave me a bit of rocket fuel. Um, uh, to end up being strategy director at Saatchi and Saatchi, and then um, I was approached about being chief executive of Interbrand. I must confess, I didn't really think about myself as CEO material, but I'm very glad that the headhunter did because that gave me the confidence to go for that role. Uh, and then having been CEO into brand and really focused on brand strategy and how that affected the whole of organisations, that was a real revelation. Uh, I then became chair uh, and was able then to take on these very different non-executive director roles. Um, so that's a sort of a, a potted history of, uh, of my working life anyway, and uh, life is full and interesting, and um, I'm hoping long way it may continue, but let's see. Well, well, fantastic, and thank you thank you for that, and the, the sort of title of this podcast is Entrepreneurship and Leadership, and obviously you've got uh, bits of both and lots of leadership experience in your, in your career. 
And one of the things we like doing, and we're going to ask you about your, your book, which I'm waving for our, 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 our viewers on the YouTube channel. But, if, if, but, but um, I'm going to ask about that later. But before we get onto that, I'd like to go back into a bit, which I've, I've read, and it's, a, it's called uh, Love Your Imposter by Rita Clifton. And <laughs> if, um, but before we, before we get to that, uh, it's obviously had quite a, a challenging childhood. We like to try and dig out some of the features of that that might have had an impact on your later life and obviously the time up to up to when your father died and afterwards and are, are there any things that you take from your childhood that you think were really important in uh, shaping the things that happened to you later? Gosh, I feel as though I ought to lie down on a couch and I well, I, I, I say the following things. But but actually, I, I think, as you'll know from, from uh, the book, I mean, I think it's really, really important for us all, you know, whether we're in business or indeed anything you're trying to do in life, to really understand yourself and what it is that drives you. Uh, and we've all had experiences and influences and so on from our childhood and school and whatever. But, I mean, certainly uh, I was um, profoundly affected by my father dying when I was 12. Uh, and of course, latterly, you discover that there are a lot of people who are successful in business, whether they're entrepreneurs or, um, you know, in business or politics or whatever, who've lost a parent at an early age. And I mean, it is a profound drive because, you know, for the rest of your life, you are wanting to, you know, prove yourself to a dead parent and somehow compensate um, for, you know, some of the things that maybe they would have wanted for you. So it really did have a profound effect. And I think that the other thing I should say is that. I think it's the message actually for all of us as parents or prospective parents or whatever, is that I really felt loved and supported. So despite the fact you know, and that, uh, that I lost my father at an early age, you know, I think that sense of being, you know, of being unconditionally loved is very, very important uh, at that stage in your life. I think that the other thing I should say on the less good side um, obviously losing a parent is the worst side, but you know, my father was a compulsive gambler. Um, and and that certainly shaped my later life um, and preoccupations and priorities um, because I've been quite risk averse. I mean, I've started I've started two businesses. I should also say that I've chickened out of chickened out of starting four other businesses mm -hmm. over time um, because I guess what I wanted to do if I was going to start businesses as I had in later life. Rather than being the seven-year-old in the playground, he was always going to be an entrepreneur and to succeed and selling sweets at a profit and things like that. I, when I've done startups, um, when I started businesses, I've come at that from a sort of, if not safety first point of view, then certainly a you know risk managed point of view by working with partners who actually have got more of a had more of a natural entrepreneurial drive than I did. So. I think my message on the being an entrepreneur is that you can be an entrepreneur at any age and stage in your life. You just need to understand why you're doing it, what might be the motivation, and how you can handle that in the most positive way. Can I ask? I'm just kind of curious because uh, how that, I just go back to your, your dad. Were, were you very close to your dad? Um, you, yes, were, you were, were you very yeah okay you were very close to him and, and so and and so I'm just kind of wondering that has that gone into adulthood I mean the, the need to um, what you said to prove something or to get some kind of um, confirmation from your dad that that continued on 
Like that, 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 is that still a drug? I mean, is, I guess you've come, like, I'm sure <laughs> maybe you've done some therapy or stuff, but have you become to, is it something that you come to terms with? Or is it something that still somehow is a driving force for you? Um, and then there's, is, is that just the way it is, actually? With like, I guess maybe you've talked to other people, because I'm actually, this is kind of foreign to me. Uh, so I'm, maybe, maybe you've talked to other people who've also lost a parent and is this like a typical thing and is it is it something that you just yeah I don't know a lot about it that's why I'm sort of asking I'm kind of curious well, I think that um certainly it's something that has you know, shaped my um shaped my need to succeed that you know without a doubt and actually you know the, the book I wrote Love Your Imposter and it was eventually recognizing and I've had this this drive, this drive to do more and to try more and to, you know, I think I mentioned my father was a, you know, a compulsive gambler. And I suppose that part of my addiction, if I can call it that, is I'm addicted to work. <laughs> I'm addicted to work and to doing things and to trying to make things happen and make the world a better place. And I know that sounds very corny, but it's a huge part of my motivation. And I think that... Um, certainly for me, um, you know, I have done, yes, I've done therapy over the years. I've done a lot of personal development programs. I mean, when I talk about, I think it's important to know yourself. I really do mean that. And I've tried to practice what I preach. You know, I have done psychotherapy. I've done the Landmark Forum and many other sort of, you know, similar iterations about how to get to know yourself and how to really sort of probe what it is uh, that drives you. Um but all I'd say is that some, at some point or other, you need to look at that and you, you need to go, right, I'm going to make sure that's a positive drive to do more. And you know, that's why I call the book Love Your Imposter. I mean, the imposter syndrome, you know, uh, alongside, alongside the death of my father and things like that, there are all sorts of things that happened you know, in my childhood at university. I mean, you know, I was the first person in my family to go to university, for example. Oh, wow. um, that's interesting. My father was a very, very clever guy, um, but he was you know, had a, a, you know, some fundamental flaws that stopped him from progressing in a sort of professional way or indeed in an academic way, which he could have done because he was very smart. So, so I think that uh, I was lucky that I had an inspirational teacher, a fierce but inspirational teacher at school, who sort of took me under her wing. I wouldn't have, it didn't feel like a comforting thing like that. She clearly saw that I had potential, academic potential, and helped me to believe that not only could I go to university, but frankly I should. And frankly, if I should, then why not go to Cambridge? And so and so I did. But of course, Cambridge in itself, you know, I turned up at university in a battered up car because we didn't have a family car and my sister had to borrow one it was rather nicely set off by these extremely smart cars that showed up there with people obviously who you know, had rather more successful um sort of parents or um you know some more affluent um, upbringings and so on so i think that sense of you know oh my goodness do i deserve to be here i'm amongst all these people who've done so much more and, and members of clubs that i've never heard of and gone to school that i've schools that I you know, never uh, never imagined so I think that drive also uh, about you know imposter syndrome do I deserve to be this is something apparently Hillary Clinton experienced when she went to Columbia and that was one of the reasons I think she kindly you know, endorsed my book because these feelings about being an imposter and you know, where they come from and how you how they show up 
at certain stage of your life. The university was a critical stage of my life uh, of experiencing that. But again, I found that it was a drive. It was a drive. Yeah, that's fascinating. Myself. It sounds like yeah. another hurdle, though, actually, right? Because, like, you have this motivation. You somehow have this internal motivation. You're somehow driven. You know, actually, you've had adversity. I mean, that's adversity, right? I mean, like, the, you know, to have your, your, your dad die at a young age if you're in your costume and all that, that's, that's extreme adversity. And then having, like, an imposter syndrome, I guess, to some extent, also must be some kind of adversity. It's adversity as well. And so still... What what is really what I think we're I'm interested in is what's behind that what's the what's the locomotive that's underneath <laughs> <laughs> that keeps chugging because you know, the truth is the truth is so many people and I've seen this and this is why places like the crux almost of like this entrepreneurship stuff is that so many people don't they fall by the wayside in in a lot of different ways it's also with addiction and drugs and alcohol and like people go. People fall along the way, but other people don't. And why? Like, what was it? So, what's your locom? Like, what was your like locomotive? Like, what's what is it? <laughs> well, do you know, I uh, it's very interesting. I, mean, I guess that there's a sort of there is a fear of failure drive. I mean, I remember being involved in a study in gosh, the nineteen, I think late late nineteen eighties at some point. I think I was still wearing quite big shoulders you know, then too, like. You know, it was like a period piece out of Working Girl or you know, one of those films. But um, I remember being involved in a huge, great fat study about yuppies. Do you remember the term yuppies? Yeah, yeah. sure. You know, ugly well, professionals. Um, and the first line of this study was yuppies are driven by fear of failure. And that really, really resonated with me because that was the kind of you know, that was almost the whiplash behind me, you know, the hounds of hell going, you've got to do more, you've got to achieve more, you've got not trying hard enough, you know, all of that drive that definitely has been a, a drive for me for the reasons, you know, there's a sort of parental thing, there's a school thing, there's a university thing, you know, first jobs proving yourself. Um, but I mean, as far as imposter syndrome is concerned, 70% of people say that they experience imposter syndrome at some point in their working life. So for anyone listening to okay. this has experienced imposter syndrome, you go, you're in very good company. You know, Tom Hanks, uh, Michelle Obama, Howard Schultz in business. Uh, I was listening to the woman who had been behind the UK's vaccine program the other day. Adele was talking about imposter, you know, having imposter syndrome. Right. So this is a very, very common thing. I think the thing that really matters is they're able to harbour or harness rather some of those feelings, look at them, and rather than incapacitating you, um, you know, they do something. About 10 to 15 percent of people find these feelings really incapacitating. But for the rest of us, actually, these are feelings, in my view, where you can adjust your mindset and go, do you know, I've got these drives. They can be useful to help you stretch yourself more, to do more, to achieve more. And for God's sake, as you say, use the locomotive, go with it. But you just it. said something, but you just said adjust your mind. Like, oh, yeah, let me just do the adjustment on my mindset. Let me hold on. Let me give me two minutes to adjust my mindset. I don't think that's the. 
I don't think that's the easiest. Thing. I don't think that's the easiest. Thing well, uh, I'm going. I'm going to jump in here, but, but one of the purposes of this is so people can draw lessons. I just want to give a flashback to a thing you said a few minutes ago, Rita, about your inspiring teacher from school. My, my father was a, a, a teacher. He taught philosophy at Oxford, and so I come from. I also went to Cambridge from a slightly different background, but also was a relatively not well-off kid in a very expensive public school, private school for our international British listeners of whom we start. And he always said that when there were kids coming from non sort of elite backgrounds to study philosophy at Oxford, it was almost always the case that they had an inspiring teacher. So for anyone listening to this, if you know a teacher in your, your kid's school or anywhere who's going out of their way to inspire their kids, give them any support you can because great teachers are incredibly important. That's off topic, but I want to bring it back to the, the fact that as I listened to you and I read, read your book, which we're going to ask you about in just a moment, I wondered if you're not a kind of closet American uh, in British clothes, because in, in, in a way, it's sort of from adversity to great success, uh, much more self-awareness. And the third thing, which we haven't talked about yet, is your relationship with money, because you talk about the impact of your teenage years on your career choices and your financial management, and I think they're great skills for entrepreneurs, nothing to be ashamed of, self-awareness, uh, orientation. So are, are you a closet American? <laughs> American. Now, that's a very, very interesting one. I mean, I certainly worked with Americans throughout my throughout my career, and actually, my um, I, I I do remember, you know, when I was brought up about, you know, um, taught about leadership and management and things like that. I was sort of brought up to think that actually, you tended to take the blame for what went wrong and gave all the credit to other people. Um, and actually, you know. That didn't necessarily work when I was owned by an American company, <laughs> because actually I, you know, I, I didn't, you know, necessarily step forward and own the fact that I'd made these achievements and things like that. I tended to work in a sort of slightly different way. So, am I closet American? Certainly, I think in terms of drive and wanting to succeed, um, I, you know, whether that's American or not, but certainly I've had a very, very a strong drive but the other thing I should say in terms of drive I mean two things number one I'm a closet world changer you know as in I want the world to be a better place I'm not ashamed to say that I don't think it's corny I've you know I developed a crush on Sir David Attenborough at the age of seven um, where you know he was going around you know explaining rainforests and some of the challenges that the planet had and everything else and I just you know was so profoundly affected and I've been involved in the non-profit green sustainability movement all of my life as well and also of course I want to help people be brilliant so that's the other big motivation in my life and of course money is one thing but honestly um, as far as money is concerned if I have enough money to take care of my children have a decent holiday have a decent house and buy some clothes that I do you know that kind of stuff I'm not actually driven by excess, and in fact, I've sat on many remuneration committees, you know, board remuneration committees over time. Um, and sometimes you sort of have to, you know, take a deep breath when you look at the quantum of some, you know, executive uh, rewards. Uh, and particularly when we're looking at, you know, social inequality and some of the things that we all need to get done you know, in society to, you know, enable people uh, to you know, lead, lead good, healthy lives and so on. So, so 
So money has been my main motivation, funny enough. I mean, the control to be able to make things better, make the world a better place. I mean, I'm a big believer in the world needs changing, business runs the world, so we need to change business. Um, and the way I do that is trying to be a slightly different type of leader from the ones maybe that I experienced you know, when I was in my early stages of career. Um, so I hope that sort of answers your question. Um, well, I, I, obviously, I, I should have, people who don't know me might think that it was an entirely serious question. There are, there's a stereotypical American and there's a stereotypical American dream story. And I, I, I was thinking of that. Obviously, there's a wide diversity of Americans, and Kim's an example of an American who doesn't quite, I mean, very successful, but not necessarily. I think you're uh, going down, I think this American thing, I think you're going down the wrong, <laughs> I think you're going down the wrong thing here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Kimon, Kim, why don't you ask Rita why she wrote the book? <laughs> no, I'm going to ask you. you, can, you, you sorry. Am I allowed sorry. to ask you, Kimon? Am I allowed to ask you about the, the this American drive, this sort of this perceived but maybe illusion, you know, illusion of American drive? Is there a story there, a real story? I don't know. I, mean, I, I when when Richard said it, I was just wondering to what extent you guys were to English people calling it an American thing and that it was like that kind of thing. But I know, I think I know what you mean. I mean, there is this, there is this, um, this, I don't know, <coughs> I don't want to say myth, but there's this, this belief that you go to America, because it's the immigrant story, right? You can go to America with nothing and you can become a millionaire and it happens all the time. And, and you know, and, and I think that that does, I think there's a certain level of freedom and belief in that that drives a lot of people in America. So I think that there is a, but at this point, that has been exported or, I don't even want to say exported because I don't even believe it's American to be honest with you. I, whatever that whole thing, everybody, like you guys, we're all the same, I mean, everywhere. So I, I don't think that anybody's more or less, I don't think Americans are more or less driven than, uh, then, you know, okay, maybe there's some countries, but <laughs> again, let's not go let's down this. Let's not go <laughs> I think we all just make it show up in different ways, don't we? Yeah. I mean, this is the thing, you know, we've got basic core human drives, and these are common yes. across the globe, and we all make it show up in different ways according to, you know, social mores and culture. I agree. And everything else. I agree. Like, and then uh, what success means is also defined differently, as you said. Like in some countries, what 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 their achieve what their achievement of success is going to be different than others. I think I think that's I think that's pretty standard. I'd like to ask because I feel like I'm against two. I, I, I not only am I an American. <laughs> and I feel like no. I feel I, I'm joking, but I feel like I'm uh, uh, also my opinion about it. I'm curious about your opinion, read about education, because I have a. Because like you know, it sounded like that was like really important to you that you had this great teacher and she took you under her wing and she got you into Cambridge or got you to go to Cambridge, pushed you to do that, um, and you know, and Richard also comes from this sort of like educational background. I I am educated, whatever. I went to university, but I'm not a big believer that that made a whole lot of difference in my uh, you know. I had a good time there. Um, I had maybe I learned I learned some stuff, some basic social, but I thought it was more like social, th like other things, not 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 um, not the stuff that the teachers taught me. So, um, yeah. do you believe that so education, like how, or how big of a believer are you in education, particularly in this concept of this entrepreneur? Like, obviously, you want to be a doctor, you want to be a dentist, you want to be a lawyer. You have to get you have to get your education. You have to get the fundamentals in there. But like for purposes of 
what you learned, your story, to become the CEO of, of, uh, of an advertising or a brand company or to become, uh, you know, to work in advertising. I mean, those strike me as things that you're going to either learn it on the job and, and, and you're going to also have a lot of that sort of naturally or not. I mean, well, I don't you know. know. Well, the, thing, the thing you said, I mean, I think um, education fundamentally changed me because Cambridge made a whole lot of things possible. I mean, it just opened my it opened my eyes, opened my world. I met the most extraordinary people who then went also went on to do amazing, you know, amazing things. And I, I'd be lying to say I worked very hard at university. I mean, what you just said about, you know, you kind of learn things other than what was actually in your lectures and your supervisions and things like that. And that was certainly the case for me. I mean, I was so busy, you know, experiencing you know, networks and clubs and events and everything else that uh, I'm not sure I entirely dedicated myself to my studies. I mean, you know, my academic um, ability got me somewhere that really changed things for my life and the you know, sense of possibility. But, you know, just as an example, my director of studies, who was an amazing woman, she's just gone past 100, can you believe, 100 oh. years old. Um, occasionally she's written me notes. I mean, I didn't do fantastic well in my... I did. I got an all-right degree, not great. She said I could have done better, but, you know, she never once regretted taking me, which is kind of her to say. And then a few years ago, I got um, an honour, you know, a you know, commander of the British Empire. These are very, very funny, I know, you know, sort of to occasionally think about, although it's amazing. It wasn't genuinely an honour, and my mother could never stop talking about it afterwards. She was... 10 paces away from the Queen when I was given this honour. And of course, it was the experience of her life. And that to me was sort of worth worth yeah. it. But when I got this honour, I got a little note from my director of studies at the university saying, and you know, I've watched your career with some interest and also some surprise, which I thought <laughs> was really, really quite funny. But the other thing I was going to say just quickly about education and things like that is that. I think we can all get experiences, interesting experiences from many unexpected places, exactly. not just the conventional ones. So, for example, you know, I was a dancer from the age of about four or five. I, you know, I did dancing lessons and I became a student dance teacher in my, you know, when I was sort of 11, 12, 13, where I was actually teaching, you know, younger children to do dancing. And that was an amazing and enriching experience because it, the pain moment for me, the wow moment for me, when I realised I could help people really be better. I could help people really, you know, see that they could do more and feel more and be more. I mean, it was just, it was a real high, you know, teaching. Yeah, I think fundamentally, awesome. I'm a sort of teacher, you know, and that experience about being a dance teacher. And also, now I think about it, my dance teacher in the dance school was fronted by this amazing female entrepreneur was ambitious and vivacious and was determined to get her pupils on stage, on TV, into, you know, you absorb these things from many, Absolutely. many different places. And, you know, we should never, ever underestimate all of us ourselves what a role model you can be. And that includes, by the way, watching Nana Cherry. If anyone remembers her on this call, she was a sort of a female R&B artist, rapper, etc. I remember watching her on television singing one of her greatest songs, and she was eight months pregnant. And she rocked the look. And at that time, I thought, wow, you, know, you, can, you just carry on doing exactly. what you do. And exactly. that affected me having children myself later, so we should never underestimate that. No, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, 
Richard. I was, I was going to say, my, my father died last year, and I just want to give him the, the credit of saying that he said to his students in their first tutorial at Oxford, you're going to learn more from each other than you'll learn from, any, from me or any of your other teachers. And it's sometimes people, even people within the system have the wisdom to know that the system is not the whole thing. And um, I, I was going to say, do a lead into your book and say that you just talked about helping bring out the best in other people, and maybe that's what your book's about. But Kimon, do you want to get, get your question in first, or shall we shall we head to the book? Uh, no, go ahead. It's okay. No, so, so, so. I was just going to say, I, I was just going to say, I thought it was interesting the the comment about your mom and the queen, and, and I just think that that's because I like my mom. I think my mom is, you know, my my mom's the same, and, and and I just think that says something about society. And I think my comment about education isn't that I'm very much in favor. Everything is education, but it's just the system that we have, this process, this that we have to go to this college, and then it's actually an elitist thing. I hate to say it, but we all. I'm I'm in it as well. Like my parents could afford it, and you know, and 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 they gave me because of socioeconomic reasons, they gave me the opportunity to learn and, and to you know, and and it's it, there's there's just a, and then that system then carries on. It goes out through the you know we all are taught that this is you have to go A B C one two three, and then it goes into the work. And I don't know. I just I'm just not. I just I just don't. I, that was just my comment. I, I just don't feel that that's a great like we can do better as a system. I think we can, and I think I think there's a lot of really interesting thinking now about how you develop and stretch children for how the world is and needs to be in the future, as opposed to looking in the rearview mirror in that very linear way. But um, you know, people are very addicted, aren't they, to league tables and yeah, you know, and being near the queen and being near the president and you know whatever and. <laughs> All those, exactly, all those things. So I think it's what you make of them, isn't it? It's what you make of them that is the really important thing. And uh, anyway. So why did you write the book? Finally, finally, finally. Imagine, and I guess also as I sort of alluded to. I mean, I really wanted to write a book that shared some of the experiences that I've had, ideally before I kick the bucket, you know, because you get to an age and stage where, you know, you mind slightly less about what people think. I wouldn't say you don't care. You just mind slightly less. And if you've done more and you've got certain achievements, then, you know, you you feel that actually it would be good to kind of share some of the things that, uh, that might have uh, emerged from that. And... Uh, and I guess that I've made lots of speeches over time, you know, sort of particularly to you know, young people, young women. Um, and what I've noticed over the years is how many of those people have, you know, experienced lack of confidence or this imposter thing, etc. So I wanted to write a really, really honest book about, you know, some of the things that I've found, some of the insecurities and post syndrome that I've experienced, and how I've used that, and the sort of tools and techniques and mindset shifts uh, that I've found uh, helpful in that. So that's fundamentally why I wrote the book. But I think the other thing is it was a combination of both frustration and mission. I mean, you know, with my business hat on, my frustration is that sometimes... And governments, for example, feel they, they can get more votes from giving businesses a good kicking than they can actually from uh, supporting businesses. And sometimes you know, business leaders, uh, corporate executives, you know, they're the Hollywood villains, aren't they? You know, they're the people who are waking up to you know, rip off shareholders and despoil the environment. And, you know, I think that caricature of business and business leaders somehow is the alienation 
uh, you know, standing apart, wearing, you know, corporate uniforms that set you apart, spouting jargon that isn't like real life and paying themselves in a way that's out of this world. I mean, that's my frustration, whereas I think business is, you know, fundamentally important uh, for making some of the changes that we need to happen at the scale that we need, at the, sp at the speed that we need. And I know a lot of business leaders who are highly human, you know, and really trying to do the right thing. So I wanted to sort of write a book that actually was a very human, a very human take on business. Um, because that's also in line with my own purpose. I mean, in 2015, I found myself doing so many things uh, because, you know, I find so many things interesting and because of my hunger to drive and, you know, doing things and proving myself, I just said yes to too many things. And my mother, who I mentioned earlier, got ill that year and sadly died at the end of the year. So I got someone to coach me. Now, I don't know, again, if people on the call are into coaching or whatever, but I have found having a coach and having some, a coaching program every few years, ever since I became a senior or reasonably senior executive, have been profoundly important because you can coach other people. I coach other people all the time, whether they're entrepreneurs or people in growth stage businesses of all kinds. You can't coach yourself. It's really good to get somebody else to look at you. I mean, I didn't think I could be a chief executive, but somewhat a headhunter spotted that I could and sort of coached me in, in, you know, in the nice possible way to do that. I didn't think I could be an entrepreneur, but again, you know, that, that, that the coaching sessions that I've had over the years actually got me to think there's a different way of being an entrepreneur that suited someone who was pretty risk averse, like I was, you know, and so... I think that sense that that sort of coaching has been really very important. So, what I've tried to do is to bring more humanity to how people do business, and my book reflects the fact that we're all humans. We all have got human flaws. We've got a lot of human feelings about whether we can do things. Are we good enough? Do we deserve to be here? You know, am I going to succeed in that meeting or whatever? These are normal human feelings, and frankly. The business world needs many more, more human leaders, you know, empathizing with customers, their own employees. We need more human beings to come out as human, run organizations, because frankly, that's what the world needs. And also, frankly, that's what markets need as well, to build long-term business successes, whether from an entrepreneurial base or from a big corporate base, you need to build long-term trusted, trusting relationships with your stakeholders, employees, your customers, your investors, and that kind of long-term sustainable value and influence is fundamentally important for businesses right now and in the future. And if you're not as good on the inside as you say you're on the outside, in a digital world, that truth gets to the outside world with a scale and the speed that will take your breath away. So, number one, make business much more human. And number two, actually, we need a different sort of leader ending up running organisations and indeed actually running nations of all kinds. And that's also my not very subtle code saying we need a lot more women and diverse leaders to be running organisations as well because it can't be right, and frankly, it's not right for more than 90% of the world's institutions to be run by one gender. It's, in, it's not human and it's unbalanced, and that's not good for the kind of things that we need world right now so there we are that is i guess my agenda laid bare that's why i wrote the book to make 
more and very different people think and believe they can end up running things, starting things, leading things. And you can embrace your human flaws as a positive power and energy to do that. And I hope, I hope some of the tools and techniques that help you make that happen. Well, thank you, thank you. One of the things that struck me about the book was that it's very credible, and there's a lot, there's a lot in the book. I can't even begin to summarise it because you're building lots and lots of life lessons in the context of what what happened to you, and you're not you're not afraid to talk about failures and admit to things that went wrong and difficulties. And I think there's a sense of, you know, on the other hand, you you've been extremely successful, and you're very good at branding both of yourself and for your clients, otherwise either your, client, your clients are very wealthy, powerful companies. And I wanted to ask about what you think are the th things you look for in other people, maybe not in yourself, but in other people when you're looking for characteristics of, of leaders. Because one of the things I noticed, one of the things you talk about is where, how you quit being a CEO in the context of a downturn where you just hated the prospect of firing people. And do you think that a, a, a CEO has to be I, I, has to be really tough as well as having these human qualities? And uh, so, any, but I'll, I'll hand the question over to you rather than answer my own question. What what things do you look for in someone who you think could be or is a leader? Well, I think you know. Here's the story. When I first became CEO. Um, I think I can say to say, I mean, I was trying to act the part of CEO, you know, of what I felt was the sort of, you know, butt kicking, you know, um, take it on the chin. You know, you take photographs with your arms crossed, <laughs> your that kind of CEO type pose. And so you chew concrete blocks for breakfast, that kind of stuff. And I guess I did that for about sort of six months. Um, and again, I was, you know, having to report quarterly results and... Uh, and go through that pressure and um, and all I'd say and you'll know that there's a chapter in the book called why you don't have to fake it to make it and what I realized is that I was sort of trying to fake it I felt that that's what a CEO should be like and and after six months that kind of made me feel pretty miserable um, what, I, what I really resolved and again I got a really good coach to sort of help this happen is that actually I'm just going to be a CEO in by using the strengths that I had, you know, the sort of distinctive strengths that I had in nurturing. I mean, I mentioned earlier, I mean, as far as leadership is concerned, what I look for in someone else, by the way, is someone who actually wants and expects other people to be brilliant and tries to bring the brilliance out in them. What I hate in someone and what I really do not want to recruit in any organisation I'm responsible for is that people can, that can feel that they can only succeed by making other people feel smaller. And if, if that is the case, what I say to people is, for goodness sake, go and get yourself sorted out. Go and get yourself some therapy to understand why it is that you need to make other people feel smaller because otherwise you'll visit that stuff on people around you all the way through your career and you'll have a smaller, a smaller impact and you know, just have a smaller organisation and business. Yeah. So, so what the breakthrough for me was to go, I'm going to be a CEO in the way that you know, I am authentically, which was a nurturing, a nurturing CEO wanting to bring out the best in people. And that also meant, of course, that I worried a lot. You know, if we had to, it, after 9-11 and the dot, uh, dot com followed by dot bomb era, you know, I had to downsize the company dramatically, um, which I found really, because I was, a, you know, as a nurturing and healing sort of leader, 
that suddenly had to become an executioner. And that was really, really tough for me, that mix. Now, my mindset I had to, I had to um, develop for that was that actually this is a way of helping the organisation to survive long term. I had to make these kind of really tough decisions. And what's more, I tried to help the people that we made redundant. I had to make redundant to find other roles or you know, support them as far as possible and to let people go in a humane way. But at the end of the day, we had to you know, shrink and downsize the organisation, which made me really very deeply miserable. Um, and so therefore, I, I do confess that, you know, that made me so miserable. I thought, do I really want to be a CEO anymore? And I decided actually I didn't, that um, I found it really very um, destructive. Now, I think I might have made a different decision 10 years later uh, from that, because I think I would have found a way of managing through that because of you know, the longer term, uh, you know, the longer term greater good or survival of the organization. But, but nevertheless, um, having become, having then stepped into the chair role where I could then coach a mentor, then a CEO, to do some of these difficult operational things um, that, that were necessary. Uh, actually, I found stepping into the chair role suited me better. It was very important for me to have done the chief executive role uh, in order to learn all the many relentless things you have to do within an organisation to really, really make it work. Um, as indeed you have to do as an entrepreneur. I mean, it's never ending. It's relentless. You've got sleepless nights worrying about are you going to be able to meet the, you know, the wage bill? Uh, you know, are people going to pay you? Um, what's the future strategy? Yes, absolutely. But, oh, blimey, you know, can you keep on going for another month, for two months, three months, etc. You know, getting clients, you know, keep on winning business. I mean, all these things are keeping people happy. It's a relentless role, whether you're an entrepreneur or you're running an organisation of any kind. I stepped into the chair role uh, that I found suited my longer term um, you know, uh, desires and attributes better. Um, and that also enabled me to start doing a portfolio and to start new businesses and to chair a growth stage business and everything else because it wasn't that full on relentless either CEO role or indeed full on entrepreneurial uh, role that uh, people might be playing. So there we are. Well, well thank you. And I, I think, again, you know. We can't, so, and there are entire chapters in the book we're not going to touch on, so I don't think, what I'd say is certainly we'll post a link to the book in the show notes and certainly buy it, but there are so many different life lessons. There are one or two things about, obviously you've been very successful in your career and you don't talk much about the recruitment process, or rather it's, it's, it's not gone into in detail. Did you, were you very good at networking or did you have relationships with headhunters or, and also getting your books published? We know that everyone who's ever tried to get a book published knows it's hard to get an agent and you also had a book for The Economist and books about branding published and are the sort of secrets of your, your career, like let's describe your career as an entrepreneurial career that you would like anyone listening could take away from this because they might consider entrepreneurship hear what it's like being a CEO and think my god I don't want to be, I don't want to be an entrepreneur after all um, and instead of that what can they learn from your story? So, so here's the thing, I think, about either starting your own business or otherwise, you know, being CEO, which is, despite the fact it's relentless and it's stressful and everything else, you control the culture. 
you are in control. Now, clearly, if you're owned by, you know, a, a mega corp or whatever, you have to work within that structure. But at the end of the day, you know, I'm a strategy director um, for, you know, a while, and that was great, but I had to work through influencing people and cajoling them, persuading them to my point of view. When you are a chief executive, or when you own a business or a major part of the business, people can advise you and ask you and try and persuade you, but you are the one in the end to make decisions. So the, one of the reasons why I'm so glad that I became a chief executive and also started uh, and also started business is that I could go, right, we're going to have 50-50 men and women on the executive team. You know, we are going to give people personal bursaries to grow themselves and go you know, to, to learn new things. And, uh, you know, we had a choir, we did yoga. I mean, you know, we we were very, very good at employee retention and also employee uh, employee development. And that was really very important to me. So that's the compensation, is that you are in control of the culture that you're creating and that you can, you know, you can nurture people, you can develop people and take some of those decisions. I think that the other thing, in terms of my... My personal views, I mean, you talked about brand strategy, and that's my professional background, advising organizations of all kinds, startups, growth businesses, global corporations, etc., on their brand strategy. But some of those lessons I find really useful to apply to ourselves as individuals, to give ourselves long-term influence and value. Now, when I talk about personal branding, as you can imagine, I'm not talking about the Kardashianization of personal branding. I'm talking more about the disciplines of brand strategy, of brand thinking, that actually can give you real focus uh, and also, um, I guess, you know, more, more of a pathway. So if the characteristics of strong brands of all kinds are clarity of what you stand, coherence of how that shows up through everything you do, inside and outside, you know, skills, experiences, and everything else, and thirdly, about leadership, which is not only about who runs the organisation, but also about how you're restless, how you're innovative, how you keep on learning things and improving yourself. Now, those are three characteristics that are really important and valuable applied to yourself. Number one, what do you stand for? What are you good at? Do you really understand yourself and what drives you and your goals and your super strengths and everything else? Because when you've got your goals clear in your mind, like, you know, your goals can change. There were certain goals, you know, certain at my stage of uh, in the stages of my career, where I just wanted to earn enough to keep the show on the road, you know, with the children and the mortgage and you know, uh, childcare and everything else. I mean, that was an important drive to me to earn enough at that time. I've also had goals and drives to, you know, change the world, help the world, save the world. I've come round a full circle on that. Um, so we all have different goals. And if, you need, if, if one of your goals is to end up running an organisation, fantastic. You don't have to want to run Goldman Sachs. It might be that you're going to start one. But that goal, and then you need to think about what skills and experiences to make it coherent, you know, that clarity coherence. Because if you want to run an organisation or start an organisation, if you don't understand the language of business and the language of finance, then that's a hell of a big gap. <laughs> You know, the language of the boardroom is financial and you've got to learn that language to be there and to be influential you know so and also if you're going to stand up in front of funders and make the case for your business you need to look as though you know what you're talking about you need to look as though you've got yourself sorted out you know, and that is 
know, that's also about personal presentation, about the ability to communicate. You need to work at these things. Malcolm Gladwell outlines, you know, 10,000 hours of practice to be really good at stuff. That means saying yes to a lot of presenting and meetings and networking, absolutely. I, always, I hate the word networking because it makes it feel so very deliberate and somehow, you know, manipulative and everything else. I enjoy networking because I really love finding out about new people. I, I like meeting new people and I'm very nosy. You know, I'm very nosy about what drives them and interests them and what motivates them. And so actually I've never really found networking with a small N a pain. I mean, the only pain that it's been is you know, when I've actually ideally wanted to go home and see my husband or my children or whatever. But actually, occasionally I've made those decisions to go and do some networking and you do have to put yourself out to do that. I've met some amazing people that actually then become friends or lifelong business colleagues or whatever. So anyway, I think you want to learn, you want to expand your horizons, expand your knowledge. That's about the leadership aspect of clarity, coherence and leadership. You want to be restless, you want to develop yourself, you want to learn new skills and, and actually you need to keep yourself up to date in all aspects and you know manage your energy uh, in a way that really helps you and that is useful throughout your whole career, whatever you're going to do. Yes, and, and there's a chapter in the book on finance and to pointing out that even, and it's a very common thing for liberal arts, non, non-scientific people to look down on maths and sort of feel that accountants is, yeah, you, you point out that Monty Python humiliated the accountancy role and saying that you, you know, it's a very useful thing to have done, but your, your chapter on going through the basics of finance is excellent. And for anyone who's, even if you don't uh, buy into Rita's positive worldview and wanting to improve diversity, and make the world a better place. If you want to improve your career, read her chapter on finance. <laughs> for, for that alone, you, 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 that will have a payback. Although, although I'd like to say that you know that's just that's just my the cynical side of my brain knowing that not everyone out there is nice. Um, is there anything we haven't asked you about? Okay, do you have any other questions you'd like you'd like to jump in with? No, I mean, <clears throat> you're preaching to the choir as far as I'm concerned with um, with your message. Uh, I, I, when it comes to the human leadership thing, I think it's going to, like, I, I obviously, as leaders, I think we need to uh, make an attempt and, 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 and be conscious of diversity. I mean, we are, and that is happening more and more in the workplace, but obviously we need to get better at that. But I do think that to be successful, I, I, I just, maybe, see, I'm an, I'm an eternal optimist. That's the problem with me. So, so maybe that's, maybe, maybe, maybe that's one of my issues here, but I, I just think that in order to compete in the modern world, as you know, the, let's say the next generation of people that's coming up, I think if, if you're not going to do human leadership, I don't think you're going to be very successful. I, I actually don't think that the, it's going to speak. I mean, I have kids who, you know, my daughter, my oldest daughter's 26, Richard's got kids of the same sort of like, they're just entering the workforce. And I just see what their attitude and their expectations are so like, like, you know, we used to be so much more like we'd put up with a whole bunch of other stuff where I just think these people are not, I mean, like, these kids are not going to put up with <laughs> a lot of the stuff that you're talking, that, you know, whatever this traditional uh, sort of business environment. So I think I'm hoping, but again, that's, as I said, maybe it's me being optimistic that the human leadership thing, 
is going to just it's going to be a, a question of survival and like survival of the fittest means the ones that actually have the human leaders are going to be the companies that, that do best so i think this is really really interesting and by the way i should just say you say you're an eternal optimist well i think you know, we need some eternal optimism. you know we really got to use that as a drive to uh, you know, try and improve things and, you know, I was going to say save the world. It's more actually about saving the world so we can save ourselves, you know. It's not, the world will sort of regenerate without the human, without a humankind. But what I would say, this human leadership, I mean, there is a chapter in the book called Nice Guys Don't Finish Last. And, and as you'll know, I mean, the whole Nice Guys Finish uh, Last thing was said in 1946, I think it was exactly. by, you know, a... Um, a baseball manager, American baseball manager, as far as I recall. Um, I don't think he actually said finished last. I think he developed that uh, at the time. I think he developed that, uh, that later in life. But, but I mean, it's so well past its sell-by date, uh, that particular point of view. And the thing is, nasty, nastiness is now very, very expensive. Not only expensive because actually you can't bully people into giving exactly. their best. And from a, you know, just an employment law point of view, from a sort of cultural, um, you know, reputation management point of view, it's very, bullying is very expensive. It's not, you know, and not only is it is expensive, but also it makes you either leak or gush talent in exactly the way that you're saying. Young people won't put up with that stuff. Exactly. You know, uh, we are still, we're back in, and I'm sure we'll continue to be in the war for talent. So... You know, why would anyone want to work for an organisation that actually had a toxic culture with sort of needy people, you know, being rather destructive at the top? So I think that, you know, sometimes when I'm asked, well, all this corporate scandal, you know, there's sort of nasty stuff going on. The CEO was you know, guilty of assaulting people or verbally abusing people and everything else. It doesn't seem to affect the sales. And you go, actually, well, if customers like the end product, you know, they might try and ignore some of the corporate stuff, but what will happen is that they, the company will leak talent. Yeah. They will go elsewhere, which will mean that, you know... The, and the end product won't be as good as a result, and exactly. then they won't buy it. Right? Exactly. And then you're into that kind of decline. And, you know, mm. you don't have to look very far for many examples of those businesses that have lost the talent. And, you know, over the medium term, you know, they've lost, they've lost their businesses. So, you know... Nice guys don't finish last. It's not only a risk management, but also to get people to do their best. I am an unashamed believer in the power of niceness. I agree. I agree completely. And you know, I, I, I'm amazed that it's it's just so common. Like, I'm a common sense type of person. That's just, it just makes sense. Be nice to the people around you and... You know, and then and then it leads. This leads into a whole lot of other stuff like trust, and I think it actually all circles back to the whatever the psychologist couch, the therapist couch, that these people are all messed up, and they're just because of that, because of their childhoods, and of course it's not their fault either. They've had things happen to them, and as yeah. a result of that, their interactions with people and the way they interact with people is just it's it's you know they need to get over it, but. Yeah, it's exactly, it's destructive. Yeah. The other thing you said that uh, really spoke to me and, and uh, was the thing about coaching because, um, in fact, Richard, I don't know if you remember, you actually got me a coach at one point. I did. And that made a massive difference. In, Andrew, Andrew, you know. Andrew Atter, right? Yes, Andrew Atter, if you're out there and you're listening, he's a very good co leadership coach. I highly recommend him. Uh, but 
he got me, he got me, it was exactly what you, I, and, I, and I, this is more like also like Richard's lesson stuff. I mean, if you're listening to this and you're a, a senior person, very often it's, it's very lonely at the top. And um, the ability, and, and you know, you can't, it's hard to get better um, and to, to take a step back. And that whole process was like, I mean, it was transformational for the company actually, um, for the company that I was, that I was leading. Uh, you know, it was uh, it, it wasn't a massive engagement, but he made a huge impact. So I do I, I, I like that those words really reverberated with me um, about how important that was for you. And you know, maybe it was you know maybe for some people it's dealing with imposter syndrome. For me, it was like I didn't like I wasn't it wasn't working, and I didn't like as well as it should be, and I didn't know why. And then it all became much clearer when I did it. I mean, so. Yeah, and, and but but I bet that you you can coach other people. You know, when sure. someone explains their situation to you, um, you can look at someone else and go, "It's completely clear to me that you know you shouldn't you should stop doing that and do more of that and do you know etc." But of course, when you're in it yourself, as we all know, you get so close to it. There's always a reason why you can't come off that company or can't sell that or can't start that or whatever. And having someone look at you and you have to explain yourself in some way, shape or form, you're explaining yourself what you do. Someone can see you yeah. so clearly. Yeah. And so I mean, you, you gave a plug for your coach, I'll give a it plug was... for mine. Catherine Baxendale. <laughs> <laughs> Life transforming coach uh, for me. Um, and uh, you know, I'm sure we've all got them. I'm tempted to give a shout out for Katie Tunson, but I feel that (laughs) she's not my coach, she's a coach of all my business partners. But what I was going to say was a a couple of things. One is the great thing about a coach is they're not your friend. And I say when advising people with their startup product, don't ask your friends what they think of your idea. Ask your friends to tell you what's wrong with your idea, because friends will be nice to you. That's the cultural expectation. You're not going to a coach to be told you're wonderful. You're a wonderful lady, Rita. You You need to encourage people to give you honest feedback and a coach is their job and a friend it's not necessarily friends don't want to be your coach and a lot of friends just want to be your friend and so so that that's extremely important and I think that I think that that willingness to be to be open to uh, recognizing that the way you were at one stage in your career isn't the way it's going to be at another stage and at a time when humans initial sort of startup the first few five ten years of the company was absolutely fine and then there was some moment where where you felt we needed you needed a change wasn't it because the early years of it wasn't, um, it wasn't it was so funny though rita listening to you it's like we're i think we're quite similar i mean because i did have a nur- more of a nurturing um um whatever style to and and my the, the really the really if you want to get down to what the issue was was that I was trying to help everybody all the time and I wasn't letting and I wasn't letting them solve their own so they were so I created a situation where everybody was coming to me with all the decisions and that's why I wasn't happy with my job because I was doing all this stuff and so basically he taught me to like to, to basically push it back and actually it was to help co- like I think a motivating side was help coach these people to to you know, to solve their own problems, which is ultimately going to be better for them. Uh, it's going to be better for everybody. It's going to be better for you. It's going to be better for them. So, 
uh, that was that was actually my like so they, it was called a kimon centric. I can't remember. They even called it like a kimon centric culture, culture or something like that. <laughs> I created, and so it was completely unintentional because I didn't want that. Like, it, but it was just I was trying to be helpful. I was I wasn't allowing them to solve their own problems. I was just trying to help, be efficient. Hey, you know this. You know, yeah. like, um, so so it was really interesting you to say that because I I think I can't remember one of the many many studies you know from Harvard Business Review etc. But uh, I remember saying uh, two things. Number one is that about empathetic styles of leadership are demonstrably more effective, but they're also much more exhausting. <laughs> you know, if you're an empath, you know, you're always sort of, you know, you've always got so much peripheral vision and you know desire to understand people and to help people and things like that. I mean, it is more successful and it does take a lot more out of you. So I think yeah. that's a really interesting challenge for leaders who have got this sort of human empathy you've got to kind of you know get yourself coached on how you can help people but without you know feeling as though you've got to solve every single problem and also the other thing I don't know whether you found this too is I found it so difficult when people left the organization we didn't lose that many but when people did leave off you know they chose to go somewhere else rather than when we had to downsize I found it really difficult not to take that personally because I put so much personal energy mm, into interesting yeah and that was where i understood this uh, other thing like if we can just uh, i never took it personally and I actually look at uh, there's things, certain things in business that i looked at as opportunities and actually so one would be like a, a client complaint this is mm -hmm. it's kind of similar so the business has failed somehow right if we're if you haven't kept the best people if you've screwed up something the business has failed. but if you can turn that always into something positive so like the, the the people leaving thing was always for me like you like a, like try to be as warm and positive and open about it and and and, and really very many times there was a huge number of times people came back to be honest with you I think be that's key because leaving leaving is you know leaving it's so the grass is always greener right and then um, you know if you but but you can always but people mess up because they take it in my opinion people take it personally that's the problem the people take it personally it's not about me and how i feel about you leaving it's about you and how you feel about you leaving and how you feel about how you were treated as you were leaving actually so this is so so important. I mean, the idea of exit interview. I mean, some culture, someone leaves, and the moment they've left the building, their boss is going, "What an idiot they were!" They were. Oh my they, god. They, yeah. uh, and exactly. there's, there's so many companies where, and because just it's an ego, exactly. It, it's an e it's an e e ego thing, and the idea that the idea that you wish people well, you recognise you must have done something wrong, and you know what can you learn about it in, in, to your culture that might retain that person, and also recognise as, as a company gets bigger and bigger, there comes a point, there comes a point at which you can't keep absolutely Absolutely, everyone forever. Well, no, you also, do you know what I what I used to say is that uh, you know if you love them, let them go. Um, exactly. As in, and but I think the thing I found wounding is if they were going somewhere else to do any sort of similar job or to a similar company. I mean, obviously, if they were going for double the salary, and it would disrupt all of your you know your current sort of levels and systems. Well, that's just one thing. But I mean, a couple of people left to do something completely different. One of my strategists from one of my teams went off to join the circus. Now, <laughs> so that's awesome. Can, How can you have any issue? <laughs> there's nothing much you can do there apart from you know, pack their trunk. I mean, I think that was, <laughs> that's not all you can do. But, you know, or people went, you know, but I also recruited some interesting people. You know, there was someone who joined my team. She had been an archaeologist. And I recruited her to be a strategist because it's quite similar. You know, you need to look at all the, 
evidence and the detail and someone who put it together as a story, you know, she was fantastic. So I think looking for unusual talent and then, you know, enabling people to, to leave in a good way. Um, trying to take it personally because I do agree about the grass is always greener and there have been several occasions where people have left to go elsewhere and sort of then realised what mm. the culture was like uh, that actually was was better and different, you know? So, and like we're all human like I, like honestly i don't know how you are but like i so i've reinvented myself like literally a hundred times within the company I mean, okay I, i'm fortunate that i own was the owner of the company so i could basically do whatever i want but like i i can't like so if i look at it from an employee perspective i mean i can't do the same thing i am personally impossible for me to do the same thing for like a long long time so like i can understand that somebody just wants to try something different or and even if it's in the same industry it's just whatever try something different basically yeah yeah absolutely so, i think so, just the other thing i would just say is the other side of that is that if you if you're part of an organization big small whatever where you really believe in what they're doing and you can do different roles and you can develop yourself within you know one doesn't have to move around to get new experiences let's put it that way you know and i've i've tended to stay in organizations for a bit longer um you know 11 years and then 15 years and then i started a business and i did that for about five years before I sold right. the company on. Um, uh, so I've sort of done different things, but I think you know, when you get to a stage where you think, you know, A, I sound like a phony trying to get people to join the organization. You need to listen to your voice. Yeah. You know, we can all tell, can't we, when we're faking it. Your voice sort of starts, doesn't sound quite like you, and you listen to yourself thinking, I don't believe you, let alone anyone else. And that's when you get <laughs> time to stop or to leave yourself when you're no longer you know that's interesting lesson there actually i think if we're talking lessons is if you're building a company i don't know how many people have the opportunity to build a company to to the size that it's necessary but like i i know in our company now in argos that's one of the things we do is we give people the opportunity to take we constantly are giving people job changes within the organization because that then you eliminate this situation where they can go and do something completely new, completely exciting and, you, and you're not losing. You have a really talented person and they go off and they lead something and they take something new and they do something else. They're happy and we're happy and so it's just constantly, you know, you have to have a certain scale but it's, it's I think it's an important thing to understand. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I'm, 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 before we, uh, I ask him to wrap up. Uh, is there an? an I, I will say you quoted Felix Dennis, who wrote an incredible book called How to Get Rich, which has a wonderful story of retaining one of his key people. Which I, I, I'll just put a link in the show notes. And his book kicks off by saying uh, he tells a horrible story about how he fired an entire team, and then says, "I'd remind my readers that the title of this book is How to Get Rich, not How to Be Nice." <laughs> and it's a, it's a very entertaining read, very unconventional. But uh, Rita, is there anything in your book that we haven't, we haven't addressed? And maybe just one lesson, because we can't cover the, the, the entire book. Anything we haven't asked about or something you'd like to emphasize as we, we draw to a close? Because I'd certainly recommend reading it, but is there anything you'd like to particularly have as a closing point to focus on? Thank you. And also, again, thank you for the, um, for the recommendation. I think, look, you know, the book is called Love Your Imposter, be your best self, flaws and all. And I think in lots of ways, you know, that's, that's my last thought, which is actually, rather than struggling with your imposter and all these feelings of insecurity and can you do it and do you, 
deserve to be there and whatever. Embrace it. I, mean, I was explaining this syndrome to somebody who was a martial arts person, believe it or not. Um, and they said to me, do you know, actually saying that, it's a bit like judo. Because in judo, you don't win by struggling with your opponent and trying to overcome them. You use your opponent's weight, own weight, to help you win, which I thought, what a great analogy that was. So use any of these feelings of impostering or you know, insecurity or whatever, and use that weight to kind of drive you um, as a healthy drive to develop and to do more and things like that. So learn to love these feelings or embrace these feelings anyway. And also learn to recognize that the flaws that you might have are the things that make you human. And we don't half need a lot more human beings, as I say, to be running organizations. What I'm not saying is you need to go around telling everyone that you're rubbish or, you know, exposing all of your couch type therapy sessions to everybody. Um, no one needs to know that. And that's a selfish thing. However, use your experiences, your flaws to help other people. So say to people, I struggle with that. And this is what I found to be quite useful. You know, that was a problem for me. This is what I found. So use it to help people. And, you know, sometimes using a vulnerability or a flaw or whatever for others is incredibly powerful. And I also mentioned you know, using that, that sort of brand strategy thinking thing can be really quite useful as well, just as a sort of as a personal discipline and a way of planning, planning the way forward in a way that hopefully is going to do, um, you know, help you make the most of yourself. Thanks. So um, I, I I think I'm just going to hand over to Kimon now to do. We we've got a, a sort of slightly formulaic but important wrap up of each of each episode. And I, I would say I, I was wondering if it's confidential, but I just heard that one of the people who helps produce this podcast does the marketing for it. Magda Wishkosh had this morning. She's got a fully. She's a Polish high school student who's just had this morning. She's got a fully funded scholarship to New York University, covering going to the Abu Dhabi campus and and to America. She had that this morning, and I was thinking. Maybe it's confidential, but then I realised it was on her. It was on her Facebook profile, so I guess it. <laughs> so I guess it isn't. But well, but anyway, uh, but anyway, yeah, we we we've got a lot of support from her in promotion of the podcast. But I'll hand over to Keelan to do the to do the wrap up. Well, I mean, I just would say that first of all, thank you, Rita, for taking the time, and and uh, I, I think your book goes well beyond uh business and leadership and I, I think it's how to be a better person <laughs> it just sounds to me that it's there's a lot of there's just basically anybody could, it's 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 more than it's more than just sort of in the business realm that all these that totally, all these totally. that all these things apply and I, I will take offense to Richard's for the definition of my closing as being formulaic I think I'm quite creative every time and adding a little sparkle and a little <laughs> stardust on every one of these things I'm, I'm a man, I'm convey a... the same information nice after every <laughs> note, to, note to self never say that again <laughs> i have to convey the same information at the end of each day. i try to do it in an original way each time but anyway so thank you to everybody who took the time and had a chuckle with us here uh for the hour and so uh, 60 odd minutes that we that we that we, that we had here with the rita thank you to my daughter this is the 26-year-old, the oldest one, who is one of these discerning employees. Uh, her name is Magda Fantakita. She does the graphic design and video editing, um, and she prepares the teaser that comes out for every episode. Magda Bushkosh, who we just learned today, congratulations, you're going to my whatever 
home uh, birthplace. Uh, NYU is, did I hear correctly, Richard? NYU, man, yeah. NYU is a beautiful place. You're right down in, near the near the village. She's gonna have a good time. It's a nice place to. Very lucky to to, to, to get to do that. Um, and I'm sure the I'm sure the education is good as well. <laughs> And um, everybody at MBN, you're going to have a big challenge today fixing the, uh, <laughs> the sound recording because Richard's in a, he can't, those of you that can't see, Richard's in a, in a sound bubble there. And it's, I, I think they're going to have a little bit more sound engineering to do, but they do a great job, make this come out really good on Spotify and all the, all the places where this is published. So yeah, if you like it, subscribe to at MBN, YouTube, wherever you listen to podcasts and obviously like, share. Um, and just show your appreciation because obviously we like it and the more people that know about it, the better it is for everybody. So uh, thanks. And Rita, again, thank you for taking the time. We really appreciate it. Very interesting discussion today. Christoph, great talking to you. Thanks for having me. Thank you.